All right, that was my Superman impression. Right back and change into a dry shirt. So anyways, hey, uh, we are starting a brand new series. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab them. I, we are going to jump around quite a bit. And so uh, just so you, so you are aware of that, um, we are starting this new series is called God Questions. And uh, we're asking some four, four really basic fundamental questions about the Christian faith. And, and really, this is intended to have two purposes. One, if you, if you are a believer, if you know Jesus, then this is hopefully going to have uh, the, the effect of two things. One is an equipping, uh, equipping purpose. In other words, we're asking some hard questions that, that oftentimes people might ask in our culture. So as we are representatives of Jesus, as we are ambassadors uh, for, him, for his kingdom, uh, equipping us to be able to answer some of the more difficult questions uh, that, that, are, that are posed in our culture when it comes to the Christian faith. And that by far, we're not going to be able to go through every important or difficult question, not even close. We're going through four, and there could be many more than that. The other effect that this, I hope, will have on you as a believer is that, is that you will have confidence in your faith, that you will be confident in what God has done, what he is doing, and, and those kinds of things. If you're not a believer, maybe this is an opportunity for you to consider whether Christianity is true, whether it is good, and whether it is worth committing your life to, and I hope that you will. And so, so those are kind of the purposes in this, in, this, um, in this series. And so these God questions that we're going to be asking, we're going to ask four different questions. And so the four, those four questions, we'll put them on the screen. The first one is this, does God matter? That's what we're going to talk about today. Does God matter? Next week, we're going to ha- answer the question, has God spoken? And, and, and then we're going to ask, was Jesus really God? And then did Jesus rise from the dead? Here's why these are fundamental questions. If God doesn't matter, then none of the other questions matter, right? I mean, if, we, if there is no reason for God, if God is just kind of something, you know, that we kind of have in some peripheral part of our life, and he doesn't really have any impact on anything else, if he doesn't matter, then, then why bother? And, and of course, the implied answer is there is no reason to bother. So does God matter? Uh, that's ultimately important. Has God spoken? If, if there is a God, if he does matter, if we come to that conclusion that, that he does matter, at least, at least the God of the Bible matters, if that is true, then has he spoken? Because if he has spoken, then what he said probably matters a lot, doesn't it? And so we're going to answer that question. And was Jesus really God? If, if Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't the divine, eternal son of God, once again, we find ourselves in a, in a place where we are in a religion that has probably no real value to the rest of life. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he went to the cross and was put in a grave like thousands upon thousands of others in the first century, but he didn't rise from the dead, then why worship him? What's the point? But if the answer is that God does matter. If we find out that God has spoken, if we find out that Jesus really was God and that he really did rise from the dead, that, then the import for that in our lives is huge. It's, it's significant. And so we're going to a- ask those questions uh, over these next few weeks. So let's dive in. Does God matter? Does God matter? The answer really honestly depends on a few things. It's not quite as simple as saying yes or no. I think we have to ask some more, some more questions. Well, first of all, we have to ask, does God exist? Because if he doesn't exist, obviously he doesn't matter. So that's, that's question number one. I got to tell you up front, we're not going to spend a ton of time 
going through arguments about God's existence. I'm going to reference some, and then I encourage you to follow us on Facebook and stuff like that, because I'm going to put some stuff up on Facebook this week that will follow up with that, so that you can explore some of those things. But does God exist? Because if he doesn't exist, he doesn't matter. If he does ex- doesn't exist, he doesn't matter. But if he does exist, what kind of God is he? Is he the kind of God that just simply spun the universe into existence and then just sat back and watched on his recliner? It's like watching a, a Monday after night, afternoon football game. And if it's the Broncos, it could turn out pretty bad. And if it's the 49ers, they could turn out pretty good. Uh, right? But... But, you know, is God just sitting back like he's watching an afternoon football game? Or, or is he involved in what's happening? Because if he's just sitting back, again, I might suggest that maybe he doesn't matter so much. But if God is involved, if he cares, if it's more than just entertainment to him, then perhaps he does matter. If, if, if God does exist, if he is involved, if he does care, if all of those things are true, if all of those things are true, then you must ask the question, which God is he? Is he the God of the Bible or is there some other version? Because we all know that there's a lot of ideas about God or divine beings in general, right? And so we, we then have to kind of come to this conclusion of, of which kind of God is he? Because if he's, if he's one, of a, one of a million gods, like say in Buddhism or Hinduism or something like that, does, it, does that one particular God really matter that much? We might have to reorient our entire understanding of the world if that's the case. But if it's the God of the Bible, then maybe... Maybe there's something we can know, and maybe he matters significantly. And I'm going to ha- hopefully explore that with you. And I've got to uh, deal with some of your expectations up front. I've asked a lot of really difficult questions in like the last 30 seconds. And I'm not going to answer them all. I'm going to do my best to begin going down that road, to, to partially answer them to the extent that I have time for right here, right now. But I don't want your expectations to go, wow, John's going John's to do the, he's going to give us that one answer. And it's just going to answer all those and it's going to be great. And everything will be tied up neatly in a bow. And I won't have to do any more work or think about it anymore. It'll all be done. And I can just quote this one sentence that John's going to come up with. It's, it's going to answer all our questions. Can I just tell you, if that's your expectations, I apologize ahead of time. All right? Because that's probably not going to happen. But I do think that we can begin to address some things that are important. If the God that exists is the God of the Bible and he created humanity, humanity to be in a loving and eternal relationship with him and he has the power, the knowledge, the skill to make that happen, then it seems that God is at, at least he might matter. In other words, it depends on what is true. If God is true, then God matters. If God is true, then then God matters. Now, I could, I could stop here for a second. We could just talk about God's existence. And I could go, hey, let's, let me tell you. I could spend the next 30 minutes and, and, and say, hey, let's talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. We'll go ahead and put that up on the screen for you so that you can look at it. And, and we could go through and, and have these, these premises, right? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause, right? The cause must be eternal and sufficiently powerful enough to bring the universe into existence. The cause must also have personhood. If you put those things together, it sounds a lot like God. We could do that, but I'm not going to do that. That was, that's an option. I could take a different approach, although similar. I could put up the moral argument. And if the moral argument, I could, I could say this, if there are no objective morals, then God does not exist. There are objective morals, 
therefore God exists. And I can talk about how it is built into us to, to desire to know and understand what is morally good and what is morally evil. Even people who try to deny this ultimately end up making moral arguments all the time. In other words, they appeal to some kind of objective moral, whether they want to or not, because you can't live without doing it. It's built into us. It's ingrained into us. I could talk about that. I could come up with philosophical arguments and, 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 and appeal to human nature and all kinds of things, and I could try to show that God exists through that, and I think I could. But we're not going to do that this morning either. I could take another approach. I could take the next 25 minutes or so, because I've already used up about five minutes, and I could argue from desire. I could make an argument from desire. And this is something C.S. Lewis does in Mere Christianity. And that argument goes like this. Our natural desires have a corresponding object that satisfy them. There exists in us a natural desire, the desire for transcendence that nothing in the material cosmos or world can satisfy. There exists some object beyond the material cosmos that that can satisfy that desire. And I I think I could make a pretty compelling argument for that, that built within all of us. Is this idea that there's something more than this world, there's something wrong with this world, and we're looking for that one thing, that justice, that goodness, that morality, that, that goodness that is beyond us, that goes beyond this world, and we all have a desire for it. And C.S. Lewis suggests that because of that desire there is there, there is also an answer to fulfill that desire. And I think you can make a compelling argument for that, but I'm not going to do that. Paul Gould, by the way, breaks that down in his book, Cultural Apologetics. And uh, just for your information, I interviewed Paul. Uh, we, we did a Zoom call this last week, and it's going to come out on our podcast this next week. So listen to it on your way to work or something this week. And we talked about some of these things. Told him about the series we were doing, and he gave me some time, and so we did that. So that's going to come out this week, and you, you can hear some of that. Here's the reality. The evidence for God is voluminous. It's billowing. It's numerous. It's prodigious. Yes, I pulled out a bunch of $10 words for that. You know why? Because there's a lot of it, and I wanted to make that point. We didn't even touch on arguments like, like fine-tuning or the ontological argument or so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. There are arguments after arguments or just the argument from consciousness. There's all kinds of arguments for the existence of God, and I think that the vast majority of them are good when understand, understood properly and that they do show that there is a God. To put it more simply, there are oodles of arguments that work for the existence of God. But that isn't all I mean when I talk about God being true. I'm not simply talking about God's existence. I'm talking about something more. What does it mean for God to be true? There are many religions, right? The fact that there is a God doesn't really solve our problems. It doesn't solve the issue. But the idea that God is true, what is truth? Truth is that which represents reality, right? Any statement that represents that which is real, that's a true statement. In other words, if I say, my name is John Byrne, that's a true statement. Why? Because I said it? No, because it happens to be true. In other words, the statements we make are true if they represent or reflect what really is. Well, trueness for God is similar to that, except for God determines what is true. In other words, he determines the reality that exists. When we begin to think about God being true, what we're saying is this, that when we understand God, we understand, at least in part to the extent that we are capable of understanding, all of reality. God explains everything. You see, Christianity and the belief in God is not just about a nice little religious practice that we 
kind of push off to Sunday mornings. If we understand God properly, it explains, it explains everything that we experience throughout the week. It explains the joys, it explains the sorrows. It explains the ups, it explains the downs. It explains the idea of work, the idea of fallenness, the, it explains what is wrong with this world, it explains what's right with this world, and it explains everything in between. It explains our purpose, our understanding uh, of what it means to interact with one another. It, it, it determines all that is real. When we say God is true, that's what we're saying. Not just that he exists, but that when we understand God, we understand to the extent that we are capable all of reality. In order for God to matter, he must be true. Not only that exists, but that his existence explains the universe and the world we live in. We begin to think about that, and then we begin to think about scripture. And how does scripture begin? It begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, of course, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what's amazing about that one statement. The idea that this book begins with that statement is amazing because that statement explains why everything exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you need to understand that at the time Genesis was written, there were other ideas about where the world came from, and none of them said this. There were ideas that there were multiple gods, that they all had some part. So there were some ideas uh, in Egypt that, that the, the world, the universe was created over and over again every single night. That was the idea. And, but it always started with something, like there was some clump of clay or there was some, some, some raw material that was always worked, worked, worked with. But as you read Genesis chapter 1, not only does it say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and suggest that the universe actually had a beginning, but it also suggests as you read the text further that God, it doesn't suggest it, it says it, that God created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing. There was no raw material. It came from nothing. Now here's the, the amazing part is that, is that everything we know about philosophy and science points to the fact that there was a beginning to the universe. And before it was ever popular, that's what the Bible said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could read Genesis chapter 3 and, and, and find out why we look around this world and why there seems to be all these problems that we, that we see, right? We, we see about sin entering into the world. It wasn't God's design, by the way. It was human's choice, humanity's choice. And it explains why there's things wrong in the world. So it explains why there's a beginning to the world, why there are things wrong with the world. And then we can jump to the New Testament, and we're covering a lot of ground here, and I know that. But in John chapter 14, verse 6, the divine, eternal Son of God, Jesus said, I am the way, what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God in his very essence is what is true. Jesus being the eternal divine son of God. God entered the world and took on human flesh and we'll talk about that more in two weeks and provided a means of justice and salvation from all that has gone wrong in the world, from evil, from our sin. If all that is true, then what? God matters. God matters. If God changes lives, then God matters. Isn't that cool? Wasn't that, wasn't that fun to do baptisms? Malcolm and Nicole, and they come, come up here, and they're expressing their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. We can look at the physical universe and go, wow, that's amazing that God created all this, and we'll talk more about that, and, and that there is a God, but then we see God changing lives, changing lives. Of course, this last week, 
I'm sure you all heard of the news. You know, Kanye West has been all over the news. And some of you are like, Kanye who? And don't, don't worry about it. But the rest of you are like, oh yeah, Kanye West. He's that, he's that rapper guy who isn't very friendly to Christianity. Yeah, well, he is now. He is now. He became a believer, and and there's been discussion about, oh, is he really a believer? Can I just be honest with you? You don't get to choose, and I don't get to choose, so I open my arms wide. Kanye, welcome to the family. Amen? Amen. God changes lives, and just like he's changing Kanye West's life, and I pray he is because I think God will use his platform to reach many and to change many for the sake of Jesus Christ, but before Kanye, there was a guy named Saul. And and this Saul hated Christianity, and he persecuted Christianity, and he ran around killing people of the way, the Christians, and he was persecuting them because they were a cult as far as he concerned. They were heretics. They were teaching false doctrine and false truth, and then he came, had an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus changed his life, and he became the one who wrote most of the New Testament. God changes lives. Does God matter? I think so. Acts 22 describes Paul's testimony, starting in verse 6. It says, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Man, I I wish I could have seen that light show. I'm just saying. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Verse 10, Paul says, what shall I do, Lord, I asked. And then we jump down to verse 14, and it says, then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. God changes lives. It's miraculous. If God is true, God matters. But there's more that we should consider when it comes to determining whether God matters. If God is good, then God matters. If God is good, then God matters. If he's an evil God, now, he might matter in a different way, I suppose. You could, say, you could suggest that maybe he matters in the way that we try to avoid him, right? Maybe he matters in that way. But if he is a good God, then he matters for our benefit and for the benefit of the whole universe. Is God good? That is a really good question and an important one. It isn't just that he exists. God must be good if he was to matter. Some people really struggle at this point. They really have a hard time. And the reason is that we have all experienced hurt and loss in our life, haven't we? That we, we know something that has gone wrong in our life, whether we came from an abusive home, maybe. You know, I have, I have friends who, who've lost their own children, even as we dedicate children to God this morning, and, and we entrust them to Him. But I have friends who have lost their children. You're, you're, you're not supposed to outlive your children, yet I have friends who have experienced that great sorrow in their life. I know people who have been abused and hurt in, in a multitude of ways, and they look at the world and the universe that we live in, and they look around and they, go, and they go, what is wrong with this world? What is wrong with this universe? How can there possibly be a good 
It's a good question. And I'm not sure that what I'm going to suggest will be emotionally satisfying. Nevertheless, I hope you'll consider it as we think about dealing with some of those things in a very short period of time. The existence of evil, and I want to suggest this, the existence of evil does not diminish God's goodness. Instead, it actually reveals it. It actually reveals it. Let me see if I can help, help understand this. The reality of evil um, exposes good characteristics of God, like mercy, grace. How would we know the grace of God? How would we know God's mercy if we did not also know that which is evil and harmful and hurtful in this world? We would not see God's love in that same way. If we were really created to be in a loving relationship with God, if that was God's intent, when he, when he put the universe in, in, into existence, and as you read Genesis chapter 1, he says after each day, he says it is what? And after he created humanity, he says what? It's very good right? He created the universe good, but in order for him to accomplish his purpose, and his purpose was for, to love us, right? And to be loved by us, that's his purpose. If he did not at least provide the opportunity for humanity to reject that, then humanity c- couldn't possibly love him either, could he? In other words, if God says, you must love me, you have no choice, is that really love? What is that? That's, that's not, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how to, it's like, it's like you're a robot. There's no, there's no love there. There's no choice. But when God creates the universe and he says, and he says, look, you can choose to love me and be loved by me. I'm going to love you no matter what, but you can choose to love me in return, or you can choose to reject me. And humanity chose instead to say, God, not only will, do we want to reject that, but we want to sit in your throne. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We want to sit in your throne. We want to be you. We want to be God. And because of that, sin and all kinds of evil entered the world. And we begin to ask the question, how could God possibly be good? It might not be very comforting for one experiencing evil realities in this world, but remember, God didn't choose evil. Humanity chose evil. God has chosen to show his goodness in spite of humanity's hunger for that which is sinful and wrong. Most profoundly, he did this through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the divine, eternal Son of God. And the greatest act ever known, the greatest loving act ever known, took on human flesh and went to the cross and paid the price for our sins, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. That is love. That is mercy. That is goodness. That is goodness. Because when we rejected God, God didn't say, fine, have it your way. He said, he said nope, I'm putting into a plan. Putting into place a plan that will still result in us being united for eternity if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Greater love has no man than this, that he, what? Give his life up for a friend. That's what Jesus did. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tell, tells the story of the rich, rich young ruler. The ruler comes up to him, up to him and, and in verse 18 of Luke 18, it says this. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, 
No one is good except God alone. If you spend very much time around the Romishes, you are bound to hear Jan Romish say this to you. There is only one who is good. And that was the point in that text. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. In other words, his response to that, he's kind of going, yep, you're right, I am good. But you need to understand there is only one who is good, and it is God. As a matter of fact, to even identify the difference between what is good and what is evil, you have to have some kind of belief in an objective morality, in an objective goodness. If you don't have that belief, then how do you even determine what is good and what is evil? Many of the new atheists these days borrow from the Christian worldview in order to critique it. And they'll often do this, and we often do this. We go, how can there be a good God when there is so much evil in the world? And my suggestion to you is if there is no good God, then you can't even know what is evil and what is good. It is only in light of God's goodness that evil can be recognized. But we are created in God's image, right? And even if diminished and broken by sin, that image still remains. That is why anyone can recognize good and evil. That is why you don't have to be a Christian to recognize good and evil because we're created in God's image. You can be a non-believer, you can be an atheist, and you can recognize good and evil because you have, even if it is broken, even if it is diminished, just like all the rest of us, you can still recognize that which is good. And I would suggest this, that if it wasn't for God's goodness or for what some call his provenient grace in this world, then we would be so much worse than we are. But God's grace is real and we can see it. We see it every time somebody sacrifices their life to save another. We see it every time the fire department gets a call and they roll through a house or a building and they run into the flames instead of out to save people's lives. We see God's grace, God's image in those people in that moment, whether they recognize it or not. Every time we see somebody do something benevolent and good for another person to to cherish them, to give them dignity, no matter what their background, what they look like, who they are, every time that happens, when dignity is given to another human being, it is the image of God being reflected in the person giving it and the person receiving it. The rich young ruler recognized the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, and Jesus revealed what was wrong in the rich man's heart when he told him to give everything he had away. And the rich man went away discouraged because he loved his wealth. And then in verse 23 of that chapter, it says this, when he heard this, this is the rich man, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In other words, he loved his wealth. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's, that's bad news for all of us, by the way, because we're all rich compared to most of the world. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's not a gate. I was just in Jerusalem this last July, and I looked for the eye of the needle gate. It's not there. I don't know what Sunday school teacher along the way made that up, that there's some gate called the eye of the needle, but it's not true, okay? There was a door. It was a really short door. It was about this tall. And I thought about taking a picture of it with me next to it and saying, I found the eye of the needle gate just as a joke. But then somebody would take it seriously, and then that would be a whole new mess. So I didn't do that. There is no eye of the needle gate. It's literally saying camel, literally saying eye of a needle, like sewing needle, little needle, right? That's what it's talking about. Camels don't go through eyes of needle. It's impossible. That's the whole point of this, right? Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? In verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Praise God. 
Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. And then in verse 29, listen to this. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Here's the point. Here's why I read that. You ready? Because whatever experiences you are facing, whatever hurts, whatever hardships, is deep as they cut into your soul. What awaits in eternity is so much better. It's so much better. We have hope. God will restore all things. And that is where our hope is. Amen? God is, in fact, good. Whatever the difficulty, whatever the cost, it pales in comparison to the life to come. As a matter of fact, the half-brother of Jesus, James, in, in James chapter 1, verse 17, says every good and perfect gift from, comes from God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, and we talked about this when we went through the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 7, said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, listen to this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is good. God is good. Tony Blair, the former prime minister of England, he's known for his faith in Jesus. And his assistant, Alistair Campbell, in 1996, informed him that a gunman had killed 16 children. Then his assistant asked him this question. What does your God make of this? Talk about a hard question. A painful question. But Tony Blair got it right when he said this. Just because man is bad, it doesn't mean that God is not good. Just because man is bad, it does not mean that God is not good. God is true. And God is good. And we're reminded in Romans 8, 28, many of you know this verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Even the bad things, if you are loved, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, he will work those things out for good. He doesn't say those things are good, but he will work them out for good. God is true. God is good. But God is also beautiful. If God is beautiful, then God matters. These three categories are not by accident, by the way. If God is true, God is good, and God is beautiful, those are the three things that we're drawn to. As humans, we're drawn to that which is true. We want to find out the truth about things. We're drawn to that which is good. Even if we don't always recognize it, we still want what is justice. We want justice. It's innate in us. It's built into us. We want that which is beautiful. We, we, lo- we live, do we not live in a glorious part of the world? As a matter of fact, I got some pictures to show you. I mean, if you have ever gone up to the top of a 14er, go ahead and, and this is a picture I took from the top of Gray's, I think it was. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful to look at God's creation. Or maybe it's not a 14er, maybe you just love wildlife and you like looking at elk. And I took that picture, I was driving up through Evergreen and literally saw like this herd of elk in the, in the, 
in the woods, and I just got out of my car and tried to stay far enough away that I was safe, you know. And this is my brother. We're up there. I don't know if you can even see it. You can kind of see it's the bottom of this, like, underground waterfall. It's amazing. It's gorgeous. And go back to that other one, the deer. Go deer in a field. No, no, the other one. Those are elk. We're going to have to work on our animals. Okay, those are deer. <laughs> those are deer. Now, some of you just see that, and you go, ooh, venison steak. <laughs> That's beautiful too. I'm just saying, however you want to view it, okay? God created a beautiful universe for us to be in. And I realize that this is a little more subjective than the other categories, but it's not as subjective as you might think. How many of you looked at that mountain range and went, wow, that's so disgusting? Raise your hand. Nobody, right? We might have differences about one thing that is more beautiful than another, but in general, we kind of agree on what is beautiful. As we look at the world we live in, whether it's animals or, 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 or mountains or, or oceans or, or whatever it is, we have a sense of beauty. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, because we recognize Him in His creation. David prayed in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said this about God's beauty. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his his temple. He longs to see the beauty of God. And the pastor in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I sometimes feel guilty because I live in Colorado and sometimes I drive around and I don't even look at the mountains to see God's glory reflected in his creation. We have beauty. We seek it. We want it. Why do we, why do we love good music? Why do we love beautiful paintings? And even though we might not agree on all the genres of painting and that kind of thing, right? I know that. But we still, there is a sense of understanding, even if it's somewhat subjective, there is an objective side to that which is beautiful. And we can look at certain things and all agree that that's beautiful. God is the standard of truth. He is the standard of goodness. And he is the standard of beauty. Does God matter? Yeah. God matters. Because if we want to seek that which is true, then we will arrive at God. If we want to seek that which is good, we will arrive at God. If we want to seek that which is beautiful, we will arrive at God. And we look forward to a beautiful new heavens and a new earth where the streets are paved with gold and it's never under construction. Praise Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's in Revelation somewhere. We have hope for the true, the good, and the beautiful in the God we serve. 
if they matter, if truth, if, be- if goodness and beauty matter, he is the standard of all three. If truth doesn't matter, then God doesn't matter. If goodness doesn't matter, then God doesn't matter. If beauty doesn't matter, then God doesn't matter. But they all matter to us, and it's ingrained deep within us. If you want to test whether these things are true or not, let's do a little thought experiment. If someone were to go up to a young girl and say the following words, you are fake, mean, and ugly, would that bother you? Sure bother me. What do we call people who do things like that? Bullies? Jerks? Whatever? We know if, if somebody says you are fake, that is not a compliment, and we know that because we value truth. If somebody says, you're a mean person, we know they're not complimenting that because we value that which is good. And if somebody calls you ugly, we know that's not a compliment. Why? Because we value that which is beautiful. Do those things matter? They sure do, don't they? I suspect, I suspect that all of you have a problem with that statement, and you should. It's built into our, the goodness of our human nature that God created. That is why we study science to discover what is true about our universe. That is why we, lo- we admire those who are benevolent and generous and, and sacrifice for the sake of others. And that is why we, we admire that which is beautiful because God created us to do it. God matters, doesn't he? Let's continue worshiping this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much.